has a lot to do with black film and how we as a black audience perceive that film. Two of one of the two of the most popular black films um, have been directed by black filmmakers and directors and the two that I want to discuss today um, is Do the Right Thing and Boys in the Hood. Um, do the Right Thing was um, directed and written by um, Spike Lee and um, Boys in the Hood was written and directed by John Singleton. These two movies are different and similar in many different ways. And their filmmakers are also different and similar in many different ways. And I think these two films um, are powerful in their own right. And also people can connect to both of them in many different ways. And I just think their similarities and differences are um, very, very connected. So the first, we'll first talk about Do the Right Thing. Um, and that was, again, um, directed and written by, by Spike Lee. Um, it was shot on the West Coast, I mean, on the East Coast in um, Brooklyn. And it was set in a hot summer in Brooklyn. Um, this film was definitely... Um, a film that was different than what anybody else had seen in 1989 when it was um, debuted. Um, it centered a character named Mookie who was a pizza delivery guy for an Italian man in Brooklyn. Um, and he his character is very interesting because he was very nonchalant. Um, he grew up in this Brooklyn neighborhood with so many different races, so many different cultural backgrounds, and everyone seemed to have their area of Brooklyn, whether it was an Asian group of people, or black, or Italian, or um, Latina, or Latino, um, many different backgrounds living in this one neighborhood, and I think Spike Lee, that was his intentions with making this film, is having all of these races be in this area. And so we're going through the story of Mookie and living in Brooklyn and living with all these different cultures. And we see many different shots of just going back and forth between um, different um, groups of people's arguing or but still having fun, still enjoying their neighborhood. Um, and a neighborhood that looks like it used to be mostly black was definitely becoming more more diverse and filled with more groups of people and I think that's what's so interesting about Spike Lee in this film and especially um, with how he created Mookie's character to kind of be this nonchalant character that kind of gets along with everyone um, as well as um, other characters in this film who are getting along to get along or you know have their voices and have their characterizations um, this film was 
different than other films Spike Lee had made. I think at this point he had made She's Gotta Have It in School Days. Whereas Do the Right Thing was different compared to those because Spike Lee was covering much more than black characters. He was covering black characters, interacting with other races and other interracial issues. And um, especially when we talk about the ending, we'll really see how Do the Right Thing was different um, than other films. And what was also amazing about Do the Right Thing is it was shot in a sort of linear um, fashion, but at the same time, it wasn't because we had all these kind of like sporadic shots of Samuel Jackson at the radio station or the three black men sitting under those umbrellas um, talking about different issues in their neighborhood and how it was not black anymore and how it was becoming... um, racially entwined with other races and how races weren't getting along or you know Mookie at the pizza shop you know it was shot day to day but it wasn't shot in a way where there's a storyline that just flows um and I think that's important for Spike Lee's style and we had all these close-up shots of all these characters as well to kind of get this idea that each character was important in different ways in this film and we get a lot of yelling and we get a lot of a lot of excitement and just some joy in black in in the summertime for um, these people in Brooklyn. But at the same time, usually summertime is when stuff starts to pop off, and we see this in this film. And now, if we're thinking about <clears throat> John Singleton in Boys in the Hood, um, this film was actually shot on the West Coast, so opposite of. Um, do the right thing and it was shot in um south central um, los angeles and it's kind of a coming of age film in many different ways um just because we begin to follow trey and his life um in los angeles and after a while he's kind of his parents are split up and he's living with his mother and after a while his mother's like okay yeah you know you've got to go live with your father you've got to have a man in your life to teach you um the ways of life because you're acting up in school and she probably felt like she couldn't be that man um and we see him go live with his his father furious in south central la and his father is very strict um but very very hands-on with Trey in his parenting style and we see Trey as he begins to really form relationships with his friends um Doughboy and Ricky who are brothers living in South Central LA with kind of a mother that is really abusive to Doughboy um but loves Ricky because Ricky seems like he has a future whereas Doughboy is always in and out of jail even though Ricky does is an a parent he is a star football player but his their mother is not as active in their lives as furious is um with trey so that is an important part of this life in south central la as well as the violence um that we're seeing in this film so if we talk about um and that film is a 1991 film so they're only um a few years apart in their messages, which will be really important to this podcast and thinking about these films. 
I just also want to say, and if we're going to talk about directors, um, John Singleton, this was his debut film. Like, this was his coming out, I'm a director, this is his film, his first film, which was amazing. He had a star-studded cast for his first film. His first film. And I think I just wanted to highlight that because that is so amazing. He had Ice Cube, he had Cuba Gooden Jr., Angela Bassett, um, who else, who else? Uh, Morris Chestnut, Neil Long, Boris Finchburn, like, he had all of these characters that, a lot of these characters, this was their first real, um, acting job, their first real film, and to be a director very young, I think he was like 22, 23, 24, when this film was directed and written and debuted, and he had the star-studded cast, and this talent that he had to even get these characters, you know, get these actors to play these characters, and these actors went on to become, um, I think, Oscar-winning actresses and actors, or nominated, and his eye for talent is just amazing in this film, as well as his directing this film. Um, he's directing in a totally linear um, style with Trey, um, kind of following Trey's life, um, and from when Trey was a young boy to going to college almost, um, and to me that is usually what you would think that movie styles would do, but I think that, um, what directors would do for movies, um, in this sense of a coming of age film, of course it's going to be a linear style, but the way that John Singleton characterized Trey in the way that Trey is growing up with two very active parents, um, in comparing to a lot of kids in South Central LA that he were in this film, this wasn't true. And we see that with Trey's innocence in the way his parents wanted him to live life, but also wanted to make sure that he was um, successful. And you could see this in the way Trey wanted to lose his virginity and the way he was kind of playing around with Nia Long's character, which was his girlfriend. Um, but he, he hadn't yet, and he still um, was super smart but there's just this innocence about Trey and this kind of goody-two-shoes sense about Trey. And his friends knew it, but they still loved Trey in that way. So I just think that um, Don Singleton did a, did a good job in characterizing Trey. And we kind of see this with, with Mookie's character in Do the Right Thing. And here's a similarity between the two because um, they both um, are these characters that have so much depth to them that we haven't depth depth to them that we haven't seen yet and we begin to see this turnaround at the end of the movie now there is one huge similarity to these two movies and that's the ending we find out that there's two huge deaths at the end of these movies um for example do the right thing um radio rahim now i haven't mentioned radio rahim yet because He's this character that kind of just comes in and out the film with a a, um, a beatbox playing um, playing a song um, called Fight the Power. And it's a, it's a song by Public Enemy that has a huge message. And it's definitely a black song, like Fight the Power, um, Fight Racism, Fight These Issues. And he just comes in and out. He's a big... Um, a big black guy, uh, I think he's probably teenage, maybe early 20s, he comes in and out of the film, has a few lines, 
Um, but those few lines are powerful. His presence is powerful because of that music that, that Spike Lee um, has in this film. And that's super, 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 super powerful. Um, that to have this character that is powerful because of this hip-hop music that people um, often criminalize um, in their films. And so Spike Lee um, did a good job in bringing that film um, to light in that way and through um, Ray Rahim's character. Now, in the end of the film, we see that there becomes a riot because Radio Rahim wants to play his music in um, in the Italian restaurant where um, Spike Lee works. Um, this doesn't really... in the Italian man, his name is Sal, um, that owns his pizzeria. And right around he wants to play his music in there. Sal is just kind of like really overwhelmed with all the racial tension um, and people saying he's racist because um, there was some things early in the film because Sal doesn't have any black people on his wall even though he's in a mostly black neighborhood and so Ray Rahim comes in he's heated because he's like I just want to play my music you're racist Sal let me play my music a riot starts out because you know people start getting this idea that Sal is racist and at this point Mookie's like no 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 you know leave Sal alone you know let's just calm down the police come show up and um Radio Rahim is suddenly put into a police chokehold. And this is the central part of the film, probably what people would say is the most moving part of the film, um, where Radio Rahim is ultimately killed in this chokehold. And um, Radio Rahim's chokehold was actually, Spike Lee got his inspiration for this police chokehold by the 1983 death of Michael Stewart. And he was a graffiti artist just trying to make art in New York um, when 11 New York City officers jumped on him and ultimately killed him. Um, so this is the ending of the film. If we talk about Boys in the Hood, um, Ricky, who is the star football player that I mentioned that lives close to Trey, um, is killed in black-on-black violence after um, he had a run with some gang members and live and he defended himself by just saying, Hey, you know, leave us alone while they were at a party. And him and Doughboy are going to the store and find out that these gang members are coming after them. And they ultimately shoot Ricky and kill him. Um, which is very powerful because Doughboy brings him to the house, his his bloody body his bloodied body, his bloody dead body, his mother's screaming, his girlfriend is crying, they're hysterical. And Doughboy can't believe that he can't even find, you know, I think it was the morning after or something like that. But after that, he can't believe that Ricky's death wasn't even relevant enough to be on TV or relevant enough to um, be on television. Because in the South Central LA life, um, kids are dying every day. People are dying every day. Black men, black women are dying every day. And so Ricky's death is just another death which is very normalized in this neighborhood. Um, and Doughboy actually ends up dying as well because he retaliates in Ricky's death and kills and is a part of um, the murders that take place uh, against those those young men, black men. And of course, somebody probably re- retaliated in those deaths in killing Doughboy. 
So we have these deaths and the ending of both of these black films by these black filmmakers. And I guess what I'm asking is why do we have these deaths? Why did these black filmmakers um, kill off these characters in these ways, in these traumatic ways? Um, why is this important in film? Why does this have to be the most powerful part in these films? Why does this happen? Um, even though we see two different kinds of deaths, whereas do the right thing, we see a police police brutality in this death. And in um, Boys in the Hood, we see a death between two, um, between black on black with black on black crime, you know, quote unquote, um, because we all know that that doesn't really exist. Um, but it happens. And, you know, we do end up having this issue with us killing each other. Um, you know, and that's a whole nother thing of how black on black crime is, comes about. But so my, this is what I basically I'm asking is, how do these films, um, why? Why do we need this? And I think this is important when we're thinking about black viewership. Because if these are black films, black people are going to see these films. And it's traumatic for black viewership. Are these films for white people then? Um, do we want to let white people know, hey, racism exists? And whether it's police, police brutality or black-on-black -black crime that's also created by the racial system that we live in. Um, are these really for black black audiences? Are these for white people? Um, does this invoke black trauma for black people going to visit these, um, go to watch these films? What would happen if no one died in the end of these two films? Would they still be powerful in their own right? Would they still be important? Um in black film and why did john singleton and spike lee do this to us um and i think this will be important when we're thinking about the black exploitation era and i want to talk about an article um made to kind of frame um black exploitation and kind of talk about where black exploitation comes from and thinking about black audiences and black viewership with films this article is called Spectacular Blackness, The Cultural Politics of the Black Power Movement in the Search for a Black Aesthetic. This is by Amy Abugo uh, on GIF. And the chapter that she talks about this is, you better watch this good shit, black spectatorship, black masculinity, and black exploitation film. This was amazing. Like, just the chapter of this, um, the chapter name of this chapter, you better watch this good shit. It just reminds you of if someone black is telling you to watch this movie um and this reminds me of Tyler Perry movies where black people love these movies but it's so traumatic for black women like why are you asking me to watch black women like me go through this shit like why are you asking me to do this and I think that's why this <laughs> why this chapter is named this because we often tell our other black brothers and sisters watch these movies um they're important but then you're like, okay, yeah, sure, it is important, but we go through this shit every day. Why do we need to watch this? So um, I'm just going to quote some quotes from her article and discuss them. Um, in 1965, much of the world watched on television as the Watt section of Los Angeles exploded in what was up until the largest urban uprising in its kind in U.S. history. Images of African-American bodies as active agents of violence in the rioting and as, and as the inescapable victims of the 
uh, batons and bullets of Los Angeles Police Department and the National Guard were widely circulated. These images began to compete with the other image um, of the African Americans created in the Hollywood section of Los Angeles through films such as Hallelujah, Charles Fitter's Celebration of Plantation Life, Song of the South, Walt Disney's Celebration of Slavery, and more recent Noble Negro. Vehicles such as Sidney Poitier's um, Lilies of the Field, 1963. That quote is so powerful to me because if you think about film, and um, these black films especially, where they're plantation films, or like uh, films about black people being joyful in the field like okay black people are okay with their lives like they're okay with being plantation workers they're okay with being mammies um they're okay with um being oppressed oh it's fine we see it in film all the time the white people are seeing it, the black people are seeing it. we're fine but then you see these 1965 riots in los angeles in the watch section of los angeles and people are seeing them on the news screen they're like hold up wait a wait, minute wait, wait. black people are not okay with with the oppression and the racism they're facing. They're not okay with that. Like, this was, like, confusing for viewers. Like, okay, so why are these people writing if we're watching them in film and they're okay with what they're going through? Um, and I think this is really important. This is 1965. The films I'm discussing today were 1989 and 1991. And we're seeing chokeholds, like the chokeholds we've seen... Um, and do the right thing and we're seeing crime um black on black crime quote unquote um you know today so this is very relevant in how we view black people in film how we view ourselves in film and how other people will see us in film so i think that's important that we're talking about this difference between these these riots 1965 and how black people were portrayed in film before this there wasn't a lot of films that showed black people upset about the way they were living. There wasn't a lot of films that showed white people upset about the way racism was going. Um, so I think this is an important relevation in how black exploitation, how this era started. Um, and I'm going to continue to quote um, Amy Abugo with this chapter, You Better Watch This Good Shit, by saying, <clears throat> they, she wrote, Black exploitation film era film production points to the ways in which black a black audience, a notion that was a very much product of a historically specific moment, was deliberately constructed not only, um, to not to not not, not to only answer the calls for aesthetic revolution, um, befitting the social and political revolutions of the time, but also as a marketing niche to fill the specific needs of a Hollywood film industry. That was floundering badly in the wake of a rise of television failure in studio system. So even black people that were watching these films would be like, okay. So people were out there um, losing their lives during the civil rights movement. Why am I watching a plantation film right now? How can we see ourselves in this day and time as we're out here on the streets fighting every day for our lives and for our freedom and for our rights when, you know, Hollywood film is showing black people okay with what we're fighting against? Um, and I think it's important how black exploitation this era started. Um, and I think these two quotes definitely frame why these deaths of Ricky and Brady Rahim became so vital to um, film and to black life and to um, even though it's exploiting us, it's just showing everyone we are fighting every day for the deaths of these men um totally fictional but totally real 
And that's what's so powerful about these two films. Um, and even Spike Lee's inspiration and John Singleton's inspiration was from just living in Los Angeles where he's from. Um, and these black men creating these films based off experiences. These are real life people. R Ricky and Radar and Hume represented real life people. And although this could be also framed as being part of a black exploitation era, these films can also be framed as being part of black exploitation era films. Um, they represent real life for black people. And I think that was important in this film era when we're thinking about the civil rights movement. And we're thinking about how black people fight every day and how film needs to represent that. Film cannot be la la la. I'm in la la land. This is fine. Film is supposed to show in these ways real life experiences that black people can connect to and can show the world hey this is real life this is how we're being treated um and i think that that article in that chapter you better watch this good shit just the just the title just tells you everything and although it's just like why should i watch you know myself being killed basically i think that quote just shows i don't want to watch myself being okay with this shit either um and that's important but also we need to think about how these films create money um capital um and an article i want to talk about with that is the subject is money reconsidering the black film audience as a theoretical uh, paradigm this is by jacqueline bobo the quote i want to discuss is um when she writes Hollywood executives had long known that numerous black people went to the movies, but they did not know how to exploit this audience at the box office. And um, she kind of talks about how successful 1980s black films were because of black audiences. Um, and we, she talks about these films, like Spike Lee's film, She's Gotta Have It, or Harlem Nights, or The Color Purple, where we're seeing black life. Um, and we're seeing not only black life on the plantation and being okay with oppression, but we're seeing black life <clears throat> um, where people are living their everyday lives. And like, I'm just thinking about Harlem Nights and how hilarious it is, but, um, and how sad the color purple is, but how powerful it is because <clears throat> we've got these all black cast <clears throat> and um, how powerful that is and how black audience can see themselves on screen. Yes, in many ways being exploited, but um, these audiences are seeing themselves in real time on screen instead of seeing themselves working as mammies. And it's just, it's just powerful that these Hollywood executives took forever to see, okay, people, black people don't really, black people need to see themselves. Um, and we see that definitely with Harlem Nights and just this joy and this craziness and just seeing that black people can be more than what we have seen in the past. Um, and I think that's important when we're thinking about money and thinking about Do the Right Thing and um, Boys in the Hood. How these films acquired a lot of a lot of audiences and a lot of capital because um, these films definitely attracted black audiences. And just like, you better watch this good shit. Yeah, I'll tell people, you better watch these movies. They're powerful. These black directors who made life come on screen. And we're seeing ourselves on screen. And we're seeing um, Black Joy and Do the Right Thing. And we're seeing Everyday Life in South um, Central LA. 
um, which is powerful. Um, and we, yeah, we're going to go give our money to these films because they're black directors and we're going to go support seeing ourselves on the screen. And I think that's important when we're thinking about that. Now, I want to specifically talk about both movies that, um, <clears throat> um, that I'm discussing here. Um, let's talk about Black on Black. Um, and we're going to talk about Ricky's characterization and why it matters in this film. Um, so we're going to talk about this literature that I found. It's called Black on Black, Urban Youth Films and the Multicultural Audience. And the chapter that we're going to be um, discussing is chapter four, Increase the Peace, Reading Boys in the Hood by Celeste A. Fisher. Um, I think this film is really powerful. And then she writes, um, the film open, opens up with this following statistic. One out of every 21 black American males will be murdered in their lifetime. Most will die at the hands of another black male. So John Singleton's positionality here in this film and putting this quote at the beginning of the film is showing, you know, we're killing each other. Um, and like I discussed earlier, although we're killing each other, it's the result of oppression. It's the result of gentrification. It's the result of uh, white flight. We're all living in these neighborhoods. We're all struggling. We're all angry. We're all frustrated. We're all living on top of each other. We're all living in these conditions. Um, and this is how gang violence is born. Um, and this is how Ricky ends up dying, even though he has a bright future, even though he's ready to go play football. Um, his character is so powerful because he was the one that his mother didn't really, wasn't really involved in their lives as much as she should have been. She wasn't really motivational in their lives, but he was still going to make it. Um, somehow, some way, through football, he was still going to make it out of the hood. Um, but killing him killed that dream, showing that the killings happening in this neighbor these neighborhoods were killing a lot of young men and women's dreams. Um, so this, this, this article that I'm talking about, Increase the Peace, Reading Boys in the Hood, um, is an article where I think Celeste A. Fisher got a group of people um, together. And they were a group of people um, of all races. Um, and they were discussing um, Boys in the Hood um, and how they really felt about it. Um, and so I'm just going to talk about people's reactions to this film. Um, I think people were upset about um, Ricky's death but this film was really difficult for them to talk about on um, this film they've all had watched it before um, and it was hard for them to talk about the ending um, and like I said Ricky's Ricky's characterization in this movie was so important because it was just heartbreaking someone who didn't have it all but was going to have it all and make it out was killed um, at the hands of black people who didn't care about their own football star who cares um you I don't remember what Ricky did but he they you know he defended himself he talked up to these gang members and just said hey leave us alone um and he got killed for saying that to them which is just like you think that this is middle school stuff but it's just, it's, it's real life um and um the group liked Boys in the Hood because of how realistic and emotionally invoking it was um 
and you see that and do the right thing too these films like i said are real life and real just these like i said although these characters are fictional these films represent real life people um and i think one of the biggest parts of these films was <laughs> was the costumes um and i think i read that in another article where john singleton wanted wanted this film to be so authentic um these characters these actors were dressed up like everyday life like they were living in the 90s and living in south central la and ricky always had a football jersey on and doughboy had his curl and his hat and you know this is when his um his group nwa was out and it just really represented this west coast vibe this west coast um everyday life in the hood which was important um, in this article as well, when the question was asked about violent images being the target audience of the film, an African American woman commented that after Roots, she was able, she was rude to a lot of white people. Um, and I think that I thought that was really a really important part of um, Fisher adding that in in her in her article. This african-american woman was angry at white people after watching roots so that means after boys in the hood who was she mad at <laughs> you know are you gonna be mad at black people um for shooting each other or are you going to be mad is she saying that she was mad at white people all over again because of systemic racism forcing black people in these neighborhoods and forcing oppression on these black people and ultimately making gang violence um gang violence I think that's really important when we're thinking about black spectatorship and black black viewership in these movies because for us after watching these movies, who are we gonna be angry at? You know, like are we gonna be angry um at ourselves? Are we gonna be taking action in thinking about black on black crime? Um, I think that's important when thinking about Ricky's character as well, because he's such a nice character and he's such a caring character. And he's such a devoted character to football. And he also has this innocence about him too because his mother just babied him so much again um, compared to Doughboy. Um, but he's killed. Whereas if we saw Doughboy killed, you know, as an audience, we would really be that sympathetic. Um, and I think that's important why John Singleton also chose Ricky in this light. Um, and I think, and this was probably my favorite part of this whole article that Celeste Fisher wrote was because we were thinking about black spectatorship, right? And we have to think about positionality when thinking about black spectatorship. Because so a white male mentioned, named David, um, that was a part of this read on Boys in the Hood, that if someone like Doughboy, right, watched this movie, who's in and out of jail, who was um, part of the streets, who would be the type of guy to retaliate against their brother's death, if he watched this film, what is his message? What is he getting out of this film? You know what I'm saying? Whereas um, a white uh, female from like Pasadena or something was watching this film. These people are getting totally different messages whereas someone like Doughboy who is living in Central LA watching this film, what are they going to get out of this film? And I think that's really important to think about when thinking black spectatorship because we, as black people, the, the spectrum is very wide because what is our true message in getting this 
you know, someone like Doughboy or someone like Ricky or someone like Trey, what is their message from this film? What are they getting out of this film? Um, I think that's really important because someone like Doughboy is not going to get the same message as someone else because someone like Doughboy is living that day every life. Um, every day of their lives. Um, they're living that life. And so what does that do for them? What does this message say for them? They're living this life. So does that mean that, okay, well, you know, this life is normalized. I'm just seeing it on screen right now. Is this a message that's going to change your perspective? Probably not because they're living this life every day. Or maybe seeing it on screen will be different because they're realizing how much of an issue this is to where someone actually made a film about it. And I think that's really important when thinking about black spectatorship um, and thinking about positionality and thinking about who's watching this film, who are they, what are they doing with their lives, and how can they connect their lives to this film. And I think that's really important. I'm glad that article brought it up. Now, although I've been t- thinking about Ricky's death, I also want to talk about the main character, Trey. Um, and his reaction to Ricky's death was, at first he was like, okay, I'm going to in the car with Doughboy and I'm going to help him retaliate against Ricky's death. Although Trey knew things like this happened in this neighborhood, it had never happened so close to home to him. So this was shocking to Trey because Ricky was dead and Ricky was one of his best friends and Rick, Ricky lived right down the neighborhood, down the street. Um, and Trey was shocked and Trey was angry and he wanted to help. But because of Trey's background, because of Trey's father, because of Trey's mother, Trey knew that he couldn't do it, so he backed out. Still angry, still hurt. But Trey knew that he just couldn't do it. And that's where we tried to... That's where John Singleton singles out Trey in this movie. Um, which I think is also going to be important to connect to Mookie's character and do the right thing. So now I want to talk about do the right thing. Um, and that death. Um, and Radio Raheem's death. So there's a um, article called Close Up Hip Hop Cinema. Fight the Power, Hip Hop and Silver Unrest and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And um, this is by Ceresa um, Gibson. Um, and I love this. And I love this um, this, 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 this quote because um, yeah, I, I think that I think this article is going to be really good in talking about Ray Rahim's character in Fight the Power. So here's the quote. The film um, features dialogue about racial tensions among various characters in Bedford, Stuy, um, Brooklyn, um, to, um, uh, the inner ethnic tensions and civilian police conflict that led to the riot. Um, so Radio Rahim plays Fight the Power over and over. And he plays it throughout the film over and over and over and over. And I think this is really, really powerful in Spike Lee's way of representing Radio Rahim's character through this hip hop. Um, and I'm going to quote um, Gibson again in. Gibson says, thus, Lee's use of hip-hop as a reputation of his protests against police brutality offers a more critical way to think about the music's relevance in shaping black youth's conversations about racial um, inequality. 
And this just makes me think about that 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 piece in the film where we get a close up of Rady Raheem and his and his hand jewelry where he talks about love and hate. Rady Raheem is very understanding of what's going on in his neighborhood and playing fight the power over and over again. He realizes that the they have a lot of interracial tension, that there is a lot of racism. And he shows that through hip hop, which hip hop has been criminalized and has been looked down on by every race black people too but spike lee's use of hip-hop in this film and like gibson just said it's a representation of protests against police brutality hip-hop is not criminalized in this way in this film but it represents black youth life or black life in general because this is how a lot of black youth feel like they can represent themselves um um, furthermore, Gibson writes, Lee's editing footage of police brutality enacted onto bodies of fictional Rady Rahim in real like in real life Eric Garner suggests a remaking of the same type of controversy. Lee produced and do the right thing with an inclusion of the riot scene. So we're seeing this um every day. And we're seeing this especially with Eric Garner's death, you know, that we know of. Rady Rahim and Eric Garner died in extremely similar ways where police were enacting this chokehold um which is very very powerful and spike lee got this idea from got this inspiration from another death with police brutality um this is so real and so realistic and this is what makes these movies so emotionally evoking because they're so realistic um and I'll quote Gibson again. Do the right thing serves as an avenue to address racism in America, thus provoking his audience to question whether police were justified in taking the black life lost in a controversial, controversial police action that sparked the riot. Of course we want to have this discussion. Rady Rahim, the only way he was controversial in this riot is because he's playing this hip-hop that's very criminalized and very looked down upon in Sal's restaurant. Sal did not want him playing that music in his restaurant. Hip-hop music, it was loud, it was boisterous, it was talking about racism, and Sal was seen as a lot of, from a lot of characters as a racist. Um, and so we have this contradiction of Sal's pizzeria, Radio Rahim playing this hip-hop music, Sal being seen as a racist, and this is how this riot was started. This is how the police came. And Radio Rahim was the one killed because ultimately he was playing this hip-hop music and i think this introduction of hip-hop cinema really played such a huge role in this movie um and that brings me back to black exploitation and this idea that we're seeing this and we're seeing it every day right now in 2021 um and how relevant films like this show things have not changed from 1965 even before this, when we're thinking about those plantation films, things have not changed for black people. When are they going to change? And I think that's what things like this hip-hop representation shows. Um, it does serve as an avenue to address this racism. Um, and that's really important when we're thinking about black spectatorship and thinking about how we view films. And again, like I discussed in, um, in Fisher's article about positionality and thinking about where black people are positioned in their lives to view these films so 
there's another one more article that I want to discuss um, before I end this podcast, and it's Cinematic Racism while Redemption in Black Stereotypes in Magical Negro Films by Matthew Huey. And he writes, While African-American characters are now more than stereotypes of mammies, coons, and bucks, as currently portrayed lawyers, doctors, saints, and gods, they seem welcome only if they observe certain limits imposed upon them by mainstream normative um, conventions. So, in these films, we see black people living normal, everyday lives. Um, but, um, although they don't really play characters of mammies and slaves, like in those plantation films before the black exploitation era started, um, as we talked about, um, when I was discussing, are you going to watch this good shit? Um... I think it's important to realize that although we see characters, you know, black characters finally, okay, these characters are living their normal everyday lives, we're still seeing them oppressed, especially in these two movies. Um, even though we're now seeing black characters be normal. Um, and these two films are so powerful and they're only a couple years apart. And at the same time, I'm still asking the question. Why do they die in the end? Why does Ricky and Ray Rahim die in the end? Um, and and why do us as black people have to watch this trauma unfold? Um, and I think the only answer I can give again is we were tired of seeing ourselves on the plantation and okay with oppression. And we're ready to see ourselves fighting and show what's really going on in our neighborhoods, what's really going on in the U.S. for black people. And I think John Singleton and Spike Lee portrayed that in these two films. And I think both Trey and Mookie were changed um, after this because Mookie threw a whole trash can in Sal's window. Um... And to me, that was doing the right thing because Mookie needed to wake up and Mookie needed to um, do what was best for him Um, and show that Sal was a racist. Even though Sal loved the neighborhood, Sal was very much in his own head and Mookie realized that after Ray Rahim was killed and Trey realized that it could happen right in this back door um, with Ricky's death. So thank you for listening to my podcast about these two films and Black Spectatorship. And now, the wondrous world of... A place where busting the gap was fundamental. No, you can't find a shit in a handful. Take a close look at a rap group. Rule number one, give yourself a gun. A nine in your ass will be fine. Keep it in your glove compartment, cause jackers, they love to start shit. Now if you're white, you can trust the fuck.